Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built into a living dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, I pray that uh, You would open these incredible truths up to us. Father, I pray that You give... uh, uh, Give us spiritual strength. I pray that you would give us uh, acuteness of mind to ponder and think deeply uh, into uh, these graces uh, that Paul is laying out for us. Lord, I pray that you do this for your glory, that we might be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for a minute what it might be like to be zapped in a moment into someone else's life, into someone else's body, into someone else's life, their circumstances. And then you have to figure out what to do. What, what, what sort of questions are you going to ask? The first question is you're going to say, who am I? You're going to look at yourself. Am I a boy or am I a girl? Where do I live? Where do I find myself? Uh, Who do I belong to? Who's my family? Who's my friends? And after I figure all that out, now I've got to figure out what to do. What's my job? What's expected of me? And uh, there's been movies that have been made about people who have an accident and they forget their former life and they've got to figure those things out. They're interesting movies to think about what it would be like. But I think the Apostle Paul is concerned, maybe more than any other thing, that this is the main task of the believer. To specifically remember who they are. To remember who they belong to. To remember what God has called them to. If you're familiar with Paul's letters... He begins the letters by telling whoever he's writing to 
He reminds them of who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them, the work of Christ on their behalf, and therefore their identity in Christ. And then after a certain point of basically running through the theology of reminding them who they are, then he gets to, therefore, do this. In Romans, it's in chapter 11. In Ephesians, it's chapter 4. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so we're only in chapter 2, and what Paul has told us, what Paul has reminded us, is truths that the lazy mind just can't handle. I mean, as, as I was preparing to just review where we've been in a chapter and a half. Just listen to this. We've been told we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in His presence. Adopted redeemed and forgiven, given understanding of the mystery of the gospel, given purpose in God's eternal plan. We've obtained an inheritance. We've been given the Spirit as a guarantee that we will acquire the fullness of it. We've, And then he begins to pray in chapter 1 that we would be reminded of the hope of our calling of the glory of our inheritance, of the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us in Christ Jesus. So in chapter 1, that's Paul saying, all right, let's go back to the beginning. Where did you begin? Well, before the foundation of the earth, when God chose you and then did all this for you. And then he wants to After he's taken us that far in chapter 2, he takes us back. He wants us to remember where we came from. It's really easy to uh, take for granted the grace of God. So then in chapter 2, we're reminded that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were following this world system that is led by Satan himself. And Satan even has a powerful spirit, like an attitude where he controls his dead, spiritually dead subjects. And he deceives them and he blinds them. And then we were told that, reminded that we were enslaved to the passions of our mind and our body. We're enslaved to what our body wants We're enslaved to what our selfish, fleshly mind wants. And he sums all that up. He says, you were children of wrath. That was God's disposition to you before grace. But then he says, we were made alive by grace. We've been saved by grace. There's a spiritual new birth. And as we're saved, He lifts us up and seats us 
with Christ in the heavenly places. So that we not only have the nearness of Christ, and not only are we a part of the family of God, but we share in His authority over creation. And we've been reminded of what's coming in the coming ages, that there will be immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in all eternity towards us. And then he sums all that up saying, you are His workmanship. God was making a new man. God was making a new person. And it was all by grace, and it had nothing to do with you making yourself into something. You see, you see how much he's already said? We could chew on that forever and be amazed. And all the way up until chapter 4, he's just reminding us who we are. Where do we find ourselves in relation to God and one another? And so last week we saw how God reconciles us to both man and himself in the blood of Christ, in Christ Jesus, that even the two that could never be reconciled seemingly in this world, the Jew and the Gentile, that Jesus Christ broke down this dividing wall so that these two arch enemies could become one new person. He didn't teach that the Gentile can become a Jew. He said that both of them are made into a new man. That they're united. And that by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. In order for a priest to go in to the temple, they had to do sacrifices. They had to be sanctified with blood. By the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. Like into the presence of the holy place with God. And we kind of ran out of time, so I want to pick up in verse 18. This morning, and God wants to remind us that we are His workmanship, joined together into the temple of God. And what's significant about the temple of God? That's where His presence dwells. That's where His glory dwells. And we're going to do that by considering this metaphor Paul uses. That we are made into a temple. So we're going to look at the foundation. We're going to look at the cornerstone. And then we're going to consider what it means to be the building blocks of this temple that's built on top of that. And then try to think of uh, what this might mean for our lives. So in verse 18 he says, For through Him we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Have access to the Father. That's incredible. Sinners now 
a new man in such a way that all their sins are covered by the blood of Christ that now have access to the Father? You see the Trinity here? For through Him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. The Trinity is at work. And He's making a new man. Remember verse 15. We're told in verse 15 that through Christ's work, uh, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, God is making new men, new women. And he's collectively making a new people. And then in verse 19, he, he basically uses... Uh, three pictures. He says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens. So the word stranger means to be an outcast. This is how the Gentiles were viewed by the Jews. An outcast is the person that's on the street that no one wants. No one wants to bring in to their group. And an alien is someone that doesn't have the rights of a citizen. They don't have the rights of citizenship. Maybe we take that for granted. You talk to someone that wants citizenship in the United States and the value and the rights that come with that. But in Christ, He says you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. He doesn't tell the Gentiles they're fellow citizens with the Jews. He says with the saints. There's a new people that are birthed out through the work of Christ. And so you have the picture of citizenship. All the things he's already told us of who we are in Christ, now he adds this, you're a citizen. You're no longer a stranger or an alien. But then he says, your family members. He's already alluded to this. You know, we've been chosen for adoption as sons. Remember that? But he, he says, and members of the household of God, fam family members, belonging. And not just belonging, but belonging as sons, sharing the work of the Father. So he gives us a picture of citizenship and of, of being family members. And the one we're going to focus on this morning is the one of being made into a temple. And so as we begin verse 20, we're going to look at the foundation of this temple. Then he says in verse 20, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, in the original language, there's some decisions a person needs to make. And it, it seems the best way to read this 
is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Not that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, but that they laid the foundation through the work of the Spirit. That they laid uh, the foundation. In one sense, the apostles are foundational. And that's absolutely true. But they were the ones that were given the task to lay the foundation of the church. And so this temple, this new people are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. Well, how did they lay it? I mean, as we read the New Testament, for example, in Acts 2.42, you don't need to turn here, just, just listen to these. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. The church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The New Testament that was given to us by the Spirit of God through apostles laying the foundation. These are Jesus' words, the Holy Spirit's words that lays the foundation of the church through specific people. And then in Acts 4.33, they said, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The apostles were given the job to preach Christ. To lay the foundation for the church that's going to be built upon for who knows how many years afterward until Christ returns. The passage that Scott read uh, bef- before we began uh, singing together, Second Peter 1.16, uh, tells us how God gave us the New Testament through these apostles and prophets. He says in verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were made eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by majestic glory, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration, they heard this voice, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That type of foundation. The Holy Spirit speaking through apostles, using their own language, their own words, their own personality, but were carried along. Just like a ship is, is carried by the wind when, when there's a sail. Scripture 
the New Testament Scripture is God's very words as men were carried along uh, by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus told them. In John 14.25, He says, These things I've spoken to you while I was still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You ever wonder how they remembered what to write? The Holy Spirit brought it to memory what Jesus said and what happened. And then in John 16.12, He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will declare to you that our, He'll take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. And so, the church is built upon a teaching. And that teaching is the words of God. Infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient. Jesus told His apostles He would lead them into all truth. That they wouldn't be lacking. That the church wouldn't be attempted. Uh, imagine if this table is the foundation and you had to build the church out here. It couldn't be built upon something. No, Christ was sending the Spirit to them. And they would lay the teaching of Christ out and the church would be built up upon that. Um, turn with me to... Uh, well, I'll give you one more text uh, that, that I've just found helpful. I remember the first time I saw this, I'm like, oh, this is so good. Uh, 2 Peter 3.15. Now, what I love about this is, you know, Peter struggled with Paul's writings too. Paul's deep. You got to think, and you got to think hard. <laughs> well, Peter says this in, in 2 Peter 3.15. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him. You see, it wasn't his wisdom. As he does in all his letters, and when he speaks of them, uh, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Maybe you struggled with predestination and being chosen, as Paul taught us. P Peter says these things are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Here's the key. As they do the other Scriptures. How do we know the apostles was Scripture? 
Who, who's going to authenticate the Word of God? The Word of God authenticates the Word of God. And in Peter's letter, he says when Paul writes, people twist his letters as they do the other Scriptures. And so we see that they truly are uh, foundational. One more text that I think will help give life uh, to this metaphor that, or, the, or this picture that he's given us. 1 Corinthians 3. Go ahead and turn here with me. 1 Corinthians 3.9. Sometimes you'll hear, you'll see a, a, a teacher or, or a preacher be used of God for so much good, but then be wayward in, in doctrine in certain areas. And sometimes the question will come up, you know, is the, is the man even saved? You know, when he, when he has such a crazy view on, on, on this or that. Well, when you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 9, I think it's helpful. He says this, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. And then he says God's building. So this is Paul using a metaphor of a building similar in our text. And then he says, according to the grace of God giving to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Meaning this foundation isn't being laid and being laid and you know, you'll hear people say God's still speaking in the sense that He just keeps laying more foundation that the church is supposed to build on. No, no, Jesus promised the apostles that they were going to be led into all the truth and that they were going to lay the, the foundation, all right? He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with good silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire or in the fire will test what sort of work each man has done. If the work anyone uh, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then he says, it gets real practical, uh, let no one deceive himself in verse 18. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. See, the temptation is, is there's going to be a foundation that's laid, but then there's going to be wise guys that come along. And they got new ideas and, and more foundation that they want to lay. And so every teacher, every parent that teaches their children 
(laughs) Every person that teaches their neighbor is building. And you're either building with good materials or you're building with materials that aren't good. Any, Any part of the building you build outside the foundation will fall down. Any materials you use that are not according to the apostles' teaching, to the New Testament, to Christ's words, that'll be burned up. It's not saying that you might not necessarily be saved. It's just saying you were foolish with the materials you used and, and the foundation you were building on. And so, we've seen the foundation. It's the apostles and prophets teaching. Now, I'll say this about the prophets. I think it's New Testament prophets. Otherwise, I think he would have said prophets and apostles. Obviously, the Old Testament, uh, Paul tells us, makes us wise for salvation in Christ. That's true. But what he's talking about is Christ's new work and uh, that he's doing and the New Testament that's being given, and it's given by apostles and prophets. And, and let me read what John MacArthur says about these New Testament prophets. He says, uh, these are New Testament prophets as indicated by the fact they are listed after the apostles and are a part of the building of the church of Jesus Christ. Their unique function was to authoritatively speak the word of God to the church in the years before the New Testament canon was complete. The fact that they are identified with the foundation reveals that they were limited to that formative period. As 4.11 shows, in 4.11 he says the apostles and prophets have been given. And on top of that, there's evangelists and shepherds that build on top of that. So now that we've seen the foundation, now let's remember what that foundation was laid against. And then he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this temple is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, The cornerstone of the temple, in the 1990s, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones uh, that helped form the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. The largest stone measured 55 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. (laughs) So when we think of cornerstone, I mean... This, this was huge, the, the cornerstone of the temple. And, and its uh, job was not only to hold up the foundation, but it was to uh, make the lines for the whole rest of the foundation needs to line up with the cornerstone. The apostles weren't making up their own teaching. Jesus said, I will teach you. I will remind you these things by sending the Spirit. And so the foundation the apostles laid was up against the cornerstone 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, his words, his teaching uh, to the church. Peter teaches us about the cornerstone that I think just supplements and, and expands our, our thinking on this. First uh, Peter 2.4. He, he's doing a similar picture here. He calls Christians living stones. He says, as, as you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So you're the temple, he says, to be a holy priesthood. You're not only the temple, you're the priests. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, not, now, sacrifices. You're, you're a sacrifice. He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, and here he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for, the, for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected had become a cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's what the leaders of Israel were like. It's like they're looking through stones. They want, they want to build a temple. They want the perfect stone. They come to Jesus Christ and they look at Him. They see all of His perfection and they take that stone. Nope. Throw it in the junk pile. But God chose that perfect stone. And that's the stone that the entire church is built off of that's the stone that the apostles teaching is built off of and they stumbled because they disobeyed the word of god you realize this when when people stumble with god's word they run into jesus christ they run into jesus christ and if they don't accept jesus christ that stone will crush them. Everything is measured off Christ. And we are built on this foundation that the apostles laid that was built off the cornerstone that is Jesus. And then in verse 21, on top of this foundation that was marked off by the cornerstone, we read, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, when the temple was desecrated, Ichabod was rode over it. The Spirit of God isn't going to dwell in an unholy place. And the shocker is, we're beginning to read that on top of this foundation, 
Christ is joining together believers, those who've trusted in him, and they're a holy temple. (laughs) You say, that can't be. I know you, Sam. (laughs) It's not a holy temple if you're in it. Well, what if Sam's been reborn? And that though Sam struggles with sin now, what if the blood of Christ covers all those sins? What if by the blood of Christ, Sam has now been brought near? We're being joined together. We're being joined together. Remember last week how we said unity with one another is not just a good idea, but it's mandatory. And the reason why it only makes sense that we be unified with one another is because this is what God's doing. He's uniting all things in Himself is what He said in in chapter 1. That's the work God is doing. That's who you are. That's who God has called us to into fellowship with one another. Where when we're together, we're like a temple. Yes, it's true. The Holy Spirit dwells in us individually. That's incredible. But we're also being joined to one another. Now that's a miracle. Joined to one another. And He dwells in our midst. Being joined together. It's this idea of being fit perfectly tight. You know, any brick that was laid where they were a couple inches apart and you didn't have grout in there. The idea is Christ is building people perfectly together. And obviously it isn't fully in reality yet, right? But positionally it's true. We're we're a temple. We're holy. The Holy Spirit really resides in us. One day we really will be perfect. And then in verse 22, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Built together. Built together. Not individually, not merely individually, having the Spirit dwell in us. That's true. But we are being built together. Christianity does not know the Lone Ranger Christian. It doesn't make sense in anything that Paul tells us God is doing. It only makes sense in American Christianity where we do everything by ourselves. It's shameful to ask for help. Lonely person after lonely person living next to lonely person. And so people are struggling with depression and loneliness. Lone Ranger Christianity can only make sense in a culture like ours. And yet that's not what God is doing for us believer. He's building us together into a dwelling place for God. Do you realize how good a news that is? And it's by the Spirit. 
I could go through all the texts that Paul's going to get to in the rest of Ephesians that when he charges us what to do, but we don't have time. But I do want to focus on this. You see, in our Old Testament, what? We're talking about the nearness of His God's good presence. Obviously, God is everywhere at all times. But in a sense, His glory and His presence dwelt in the holy place, in the temple, which is a copy of the holy place that's made without hands, right? So in the Old Testament, we would read things like this, 2 Chronicles 30, 27. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven. So the prayers reached heaven. His holy habitation. And so there's the Hebrew word for God's dwelling place that gets translated as heaven. First Kings 8.49 God is called upon to hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer. But now in the new covenant, this is incredible. Track with me. In the new covenant, it is nearness. Like no man has ever experienced. See, even the psalmist knew nearness was good. Psalm 48, 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all of his saints, for the people of Israel who are near, are, are for the people of Israel who are near to him. So the people that rejoice and praise are those who are brought near to the Lord, are Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him who call on Him in truth. Someone could say, how near? Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The psalmist says, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. But in the new covenant, the nearness is so near that it's inside every believer. And that as we're gathered being built. You, 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 know, you notice how this is happening right now. Look at what he says. In Him you are also being built together. Why? Because the temple's getting bigger. Why? Because more people are being saved. His glory, Christ is going to fill all in all as the church expands and this temple's getting bigger and bigger and more unified. And He fills it up with the nearness that our dull hearts have a hard time even <laughs> comprehending. I want to make it practical in one way, and, they, and then we end here. So Philippians 4, probably the verse I use in counseling more than any other verse, our passage, Philippians 4. You all know me, you know, uh, one of the major sins of my life was an anxious heart, sinful worry. Here Paul says in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you take that literal, man, you're afraid to say that to some people at certain times. Aren't you? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. <laughs> yeah, we're smart enough. We don't, we don't say things like Paul's saying here. 
And then he double, he not only doubled down, doubles down on it, says it twice, then he says this, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Christian, rejoice. Rejoice always. Again, I say it, rejoice. It's reasonable. Why? The Lord is at hand. Christian, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything. What? You want me to rejoice all the time and now you don't want me to be anxious about anything? No, he's not joking around. Do not be anxious about anything, but rather do this. Being anxious is an action you choose to do. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In your trial, don't be anxious about anything, but rather do this other thing. Pray to God. Remember He's near. Pray to Him and all. Remember to pray with thanksgiving because in this trial, you're going to be tempted to think God's not good. And He's just told you the best news in the world. God is at hand. God is near. And then look at what he says. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You realize? We've been reconciled to one another. We've been reconciled to God. The peace is what we're... Imagine what the peace of God is like, and then you're not going to get very far because it says it surpasses all understanding. How, what would it be like to be at peace? We'll find out someday. Right now, our sins, we struggle. One day we're going to know. And then he tells us to think about good things. And then it, in, in verses 8, true things. This would be God and Scripture. And then, and then look at what he says in verse 9. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See that? Rejoice always. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray. And when you pray, the peace, peace of God will be with you. Think about true things, and then the God of peace will be with you. There's nothing more valuable Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Say it. For you are with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us who we are. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that when we wake up, we reconcile with fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, this is what we're made for. It glorifies You. We sin against one another. We struggle. But as we forgive one another and join together, You are glorified. Father, let the world see Your glory through that oneness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.